word. I'm going to say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Tempe, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in the state and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on Word, it's Tales from the Cripsmas, as we explore the tradition of ghost and goblin stories recounted during the Christmas season, starting with the likes of Ebenezer Scrooge. The most famous Christmas story we have is a ghost story, and conversely, the most famous ghost story we have is a Christmas story. And later, the much creepier Krampus from Arizona-based indie filmmaker Robert Conway. Uh, My distributor actually, which is Reverend, but he called me on Christmas, and he was like, what have you heard of Krampus? And I had no idea what he was talking about. I'm like, what is that, some kind of rare ailment? But first... You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch. Tis not the season without the Grinch and how he stole Christmas. It's been a rite of passage for many children for over 50 years. That song, You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch, is one of the most popular ones featured in the 1966 cartoon special. The lyrics were written by Theodore Ted Geisel, a.k.a. Dr. Seuss himself. The music was composed by Albert Haig, and the song was performed by Thurl Ravenscroft. Widely viewed by many people as just a simple retelling of a Christmas carol, my first guest agrees that the Grinch is a scary goblin. Dr. Seth Lehrer is a professor of literature at the University of California, San Diego, and is the author of much scholarship, including children's literature, a reader's history from Aesop to Harry Potter. I begin our discussion by asking him about the religious nature of Theodore Geisel. It's probably fair to say that he had the kind of semi secular American Christianity that many people of his sensibility and his generation had. What many scholars today are actually interested in is the way Ted Geisel had been a political cartoonist and what his politics were and the relationship between the social upheavals of the 40s and 50s and their impact on his work. So from the point of view of something like The Grinch or The Christmas Season, I think the issue for uh, Ted probably was less an issue of proto-hallmark religious sentimentality than it was a recognition that society itself was changing. And change, social upheaval, were affecting the way in which we celebrated the holidays. It's uh, really interesting. How so? How the Grinch Stole Christmas appeared in the fall of 1957, and it was published first in Red Book uh, as a selection, and then it came out as a hardbound book, and it appeared in between The Cat in the Hat and The Cat in the Hat Comes Back. And I think of 1957 as a watershed year in American 
social history. This is the year that we got freaked out about Sputnik. It's the year that Elvis showed up on television. It's the year that Allen Ginsberg read Howell. And so there's a lot about that year and a lot about that time in the late 50s when a lot of Eisenhower-era complacency is being challenged. And a character like the Grinch, I think, is really more like a kind of performance artist than anything else. And the Cat in the Hat and the Grinch are, are both external threats to American domestic security. The Cat in the Hat shows up. He makes a mess. He cleans it up. He leaves. And so it's very easy to overread Doc. But I don't think it's an overreading to say that what the Grinch and what the Cat in the Hat are responding to is this concern in American culture that the question that people are asking is, how secure are we in our domestic lives? Is everything a hallmark card or are there threats from the outside? And certainly as you said at the beginning, the fact that the Grinch is a kind of monstrous looking figure, he's not benign. The Grinch is not someone you're going to let in the house looking like that. And certainly uh, when I was a kid growing up, I remember the 1960s television animated version of it with Boris Karloff doing the voiceover. And then people of my son's generation will uh, remember the Jim Carrey live action version of the Grinch. Sure. So the point about the Grinch is he is a very scary alien threat. If we understand what's going on in America in the late 50s, we can see how, you know, there's a great fear that somebody's going to come in and steal our Christmas. Somebody's going to come in and make a mess in the house. Somebody's going to come in and expose our lives as somehow more fractured and more insecure than they really are. Yeah, and I think, you know, what you illustrate there very well is the difference between sort of a child's reading of the story and an adult reading upon deeper investigation. I've heard some of those connections about Dr. Seuss being connected to what you're talking about, this fear of the unknown. I mean, we're far past World War II, but the sensibility, I think, for many people that the world is a much bigger place than they thought might have been scary to them at the time. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm of a generation that grew up with duck and cover. I think for that world, I think there's a great deal of anxiety in the 50s about external threat. And one of the great things about Dr. Seuss is that he's able to say to children, external threats are there, but everything's going to work out at the end. There are always happy endings. And I think that's the whole point about the Grinch is that there's something terrifying about him. But He's domesticated for us there. And to be a child in the 50s and early 60s was to want to be told stories that everything was going to work out. What do you think the lasting power then is of Dr. Seuss? I mean, obviously you delineated the differences between what version you grew up with and the Jim Carrey version, which I think is pretty scary, frankly. But why do you think that this has endured? First of all, Dr. Seuss really was the inspiration for a lot of later American social protest in uh, the 60s and 70s. I think that Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters, I think that the Woodstock generation really is the Dr. Seuss generation. I think it's performative, it's anarchic, it's subversive, 
Uh, it's messy. And I think growing up on Dr. Seuss really inspired a lot of that. There's a lot of dark in Dr. Seuss. There's a lot of undercurrents of anxiety and fear. One of the things that was fascinating is when UC San Diego got the materials from the Geisel estate, we got a lot of unpublished and unreproduced paintings that Ted Geisel had done. He worked in acrylic. And to be absolutely frank, he was a really terrible painter. He was a great draftsman and a great artist in pencil and ink uh, and wash and brush. But as a painter, the work is really awful and terrifying. But what these paintings almost all contain, and there are about a dozen or so of them that we have, is these tiny characters lost in labyrinths or mazes or terrifying landscapes. And these are nightmare kind of worlds. And I think that really is the dark side of Dr. Seuss that we have dignified or that we've sort of cleaned up. Everybody knows that the grim fairy tales really are horrible. Right. But, well, I don't think that Dr. Seuss is as grim as the Grimm's, but I think it's certainly true that what Geisel is responding to in his own life and in American society is a great sense of insecurity and a great fear of the alien and the other. Well said, Dr. Seth Lehrer with UC San Diego. I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us about Theodore Geisel, better known as Dr. Seuss. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure, and it's always a great honor to talk about children's literature, to uh, talk about Dr. Seuss, and to talk about my own university, which, as I've said, is really the home now for uh, anyone who wants to work on Seuss and his world. Where did the legacy of telling ghost and goblin stories during the Christmas season come from anyway? Hint, across the pond. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. It's one of the hallmarks of your public radio station. Stories well told. You count on KJZZ for fact-based reporting and multiple viewpoints. Listener support ensures the stories are well told. Take a look at some favorite stories of the year and make a gift of support at KJZZ.org. KJZZ Spot 127 Youth Media Center is a qualifying charitable tax organization, which means that your contribution is eligible for a dollar-for-dollar credit on your Arizona taxes. Visit taxcredit.spot127.org today and support our award-winning students. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Merry Christmas. The notion of telling ghost and goblin stories during the Christmas season is not a novel concept. Writer Colin Dickey has researched the question exhaustively, and in his 2017 piece written for Smithsonian, he focuses on Charles Dickens's classic, A Christmas Carol, which was originally published on December 19, 1843. The first edition sold out by Christmas Eve. I began our discussion via Skype by asking Colin to check my sense that most Americans despite their love for the classic, do not consider it a ghost story. Right. I mean, I think it's, we don't even think of it as a ghost story. I mean, as, a, as I, you know, realized a while ago, I mean, the most famous Christmas story we have is a ghost story. And, and conversely, the most famous ghost story we have is a Christmas story. But, you know, A Christmas Carol by Dickens is so ingrained in 
our psyche as you know a Christmas story. And and I think the flip side is that we've lost this tradition that was very much alive in Dickens' time of telling ghost stories around Christmas Eve. And so it has become one and not the other in a sort of fascinating way. Yeah, and I don't know how many movie adaptations there have been, but I know I've seen at least three myself, if you count Scrooged, uh, with yeah. Bill Murray as a sort of a retelling of it. Granted, Dickens, of course, was British, and one of the main points of the article that you wrote back in 2017 shows that there's actually a long history of telling ghost stories around Christmas, but just not here in America. Why was that prevalent in Dickens' time and going back even before his time in in Europe as well? It stretches back really far. You can find uh, there's a Shakespeare play called A Witter's Tale, and it's not quite supernatural, but there is this sort of sense of, of... it is a um, is a a time the dead of winter is a time to tell kind of dark and uh, and spooky stories. There there's a line in the Shakespeare play: "A sad tale is best for winter." I have one of those of sprites and goblins. You know, there's this kind of this idea that it's the dead of winter when you tell these uh, stories about you know ghosts and little creatures. It didn't really transfer into the United States, I guess, in some sense, because the earliest Anglo settlers were, you know pretty puritanical and they didn't really go in for entertainment of any kind, let alone kind of supernatural entertainment based on non-Christian folk sources and stuff like that. You know, I guess because we were a little bit more puritanical over here, it didn't quite catch at least, you know, among among the early kind of white communities in, in North America. You mentioned that Washington Irving in your piece helped resurrect a number of forgotten Christmas traditions in the early 19th century, but it was really Dickens who popularized the notion of telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve. Does it ever really change, or does that sort of puritanical mindset kind of stick with us, and is that the reason why the tradition of telling ghost stories is not very popular still in the United States? Oh, well, no. I mean, obviously, you know, a bunch of our Christmas tradition stuff that that Irving and others popularized, you know, are themselves pretty pagan, you know, Christmas trees and and wreaths and mistletoes and all that stuff. So we kind of gradually lost that puritanical bent. And certainly there was the sort of late 19th century after Dickens, you know, America did have a a pretty strong tradition of telling ghost stories around Christmas. And, you know, what one of my, my favorite examples is the classic Henry James novella, The Turn of the Screw, which begins, there's a sort of frame story before you get into the story of the governess and, you know, the ghosts and that. But it, it begins with this kind of frame story where these people are sitting around on Christmas Eve telling ghost stories. And, you know, so American writers like James inherited this tradition. I mean, Dickens was wildly popular in the States as well. And so we we eventually got into the swing of things. I think it came across the pond a little later and pretty much no sooner had Americans really begun to embrace this idea of, of telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve than we started to get a, a large influx of Irish and Scottish immigrants. And they were the ones who brought the traditions that would ultimately become Halloween. You know, so it was sort of, it, we just had a shorter window because almost as soon as we were telling ghost stories on Christmas, there was a, a new generation of immigrants who were who were sort of creating this other kind of supernatural holiday and that that by the early 20th century became the dominant one. And you write in your article that that holiday as we know it is an odd hybrid of Celtic and Catholic traditions owing to that influx of Scottish and Irish immigrants, I assume. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And again, I mean, just just in the same way that Christmas is, you know, at least in its current form, a kind of amalgamation of Christian and also pagan traditions. I mean, that remains, I think, one of the really fascinating and amazing things about 
this country in particular, but you know, just generally the way that we celebrate holidays, that it's, it's always a kind of constant mix of new and old traditions, new and old voices, different immigrant communities kind of bringing their little piece to the table and everything getting kind of woven together in this cool fabric. So I think both of those holidays, Christmas and Halloween, have these really diverse and fantastic and dynamic sources to them. And my plea for bringing back ghost stories to Christmas is is to just add kind of one more weave to that fabric, if you will. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And so I suppose perhaps platforms like Netflix, for instance, various streaming services, maybe that's sort of where newer stories could arise. Uh, Stories about ghosts, for instance, in Christmas. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, because these things kind of change with time. I mean, we do see there's a there's a movie coming out or maybe it's already out, uh, Black Christmas, which is a, a horror movie based around Christmas. And so, you know, so we we kind of still hold out a little bit of uh, potential for the paranormal or the supernatural around around Christmas. So, it you know, it, it yeah, it comes and goes. And I would think that, you know, now that we have such a wide variety of places to get, you know, storytelling, as you mentioned, you know, Netflix and other other places, it, you know, I, I, I hope that people continue to uh, experiment and try new things instead of, you know, just churning out the same kind of, you know, hallmark Christmas stories over and over again. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting, uh, just as a, a sidebar, I, I read recently that Hallmark has started to develop Christmas stories that include same-sex relationships, They're trying to kind of match the times. Colin, what are you working on currently? This piece that you wrote a couple of years back now uh, was for Smithsonian. And uh, what are you working on now, creatively or professionally? My next book is coming out next July. So not in time for Christmas, but uh, in time for summer. And that one moves away from ghosts and focuses on cryptozoology, which is your, your Bigfoots and your Loch Ness Monsters, as well as UFOs, flying saucers, Area 51 and various government conspiracies with a little bit of the strange history of the lost continents of Atlantis and Lemuria thrown in for fun, topped off with the bizarre story of a shower of meat that fell from the sky in Kentucky in 1876. (laughs) What has attracted you to this sense of, I guess I want to call it alternate history. I started to say bizarro history. I'm not sure I I can, you know, arrive at at a term, maybe off the beaten path history. Yeah, I like to use the term fringe history, but uh, but Bizarro works just as well. I mean, I think that um, there's a tendency among some people to kind of dismiss this stuff because it is kind of fringe and bizarre. And, you know, and, and sure, it definitely is. You know, my interest, though, is that even though these are non-true paranormal supernatural stuff, even with all that being said, it still does affect the world we live in. You know, there are people who are making million dollar deals based on their astrology readings. And so, you know, whether or not the the underlying stuff is true or false, I think it still impacts our world. And I'm drawn to these things because I find that when you take them seriously, you often get a much richer understanding of, of who we are as, as humans, who we are as a country, and uh, how we make decisions and and what we value and that kind of stuff. Colin, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us about another piece of history that uh, maybe a lot of folks didn't really, you know, have any idea about before. And we appreciate your plea to resurrect the Christmas tradition of telling ghost stories, as the title of your article implies. Thank you so much for having me on, and I hope everybody goes out and 
gather some friends and tell some good spooky stories on Christmas Eve. Well said, Colin. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. In addition to the Smithsonian, Colin Dickey has written for The New Republic, The Believer, and the L.A. Review of Books. He also teaches creative writing for National University. Coming up, the scariest of all the Christmas goblins, Krampus. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. I'm Jay Ellison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on KJZZ. With true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world, Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. Moth stories aren't part of the disposable daily information flow. They stick with you. The Moth Radio Hour airs Saturday at 3 on KJZZ. Tell me about this little guy. He's the Krampus. He knows who's been bad. And? He punishes them. How does he do that? You'll see. Even for a kid who's been through a lot, there's something really weird about her. A child had the devil in her. Krampus, the Christmas devil. Contrary to the different variations of Santa Claus who said to reward good children, Krampus is sent to punish the evil ones. It's Christmas time. Do you know what happens at Christmas time? Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. And Merry Christmas. What you just heard was the trailer for Krampus, The Reckoning, a 2015 film by Robert Conway. He's an Arizona-based indie filmmaker with several movies to his credit, including the popular franchise devoted to that Christmas ghoul. I caught up with him at the KJZZ Studios in Tempe to discuss his zeal for the scarier side of the holiday season and why he chose to dabble in the horror genre as a movie-making enterprise. It's interesting how that happened. I wanted to make one, and I think I ended up making about ten. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes you just get, you know, you just stick with what, what's working for a while. Sure. Um, I, I like I like them. I mean, I, I'm not as passionate as them about Westerns or other eras, and historical film is really, uh, I'd like to do something in the medieval time frame there or the Napoleonic Wars. I'm really into history, so that's kind of a little bit more of my you know, just natural base interest. One of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you for this particular episode is because we're focusing on the scarier side of the holiday season. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, for instance, don't necessarily think of Scrooge and A Christmas Carol as a ghost story. Right. The fact of the matter is, it really is one. It definitely is, yeah. And you have The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, which is kind of a takeoff, obviously, of Scrooge. Uh, certainly not a ghost, but a, a goblin type of figure. Right, right. And Krampus. That's why we wanted to talk to you, because you've turned this into a franchise of, yeah, of yeah. films. Yeah, I have, actually. Yeah. Uh, 2015, right? Krampus The Reckoning, followed up by Unleashed yeah. in 2016, and then Krampus Origins just last year in 2018. Yep. Do you remember the first time you ever heard about Krampus? Uh, it was the uh, Christmas before we shot the first one. Uh, my distributor actually, which is Reverend, but he called me on Christmas and he was like, what have you heard of Krampus? And I had no idea what he was talking about. I'm like, what is that? Some kind of rare ailment? 
<laughs> you know, I had no idea what he was talking about. And he's like, no, like they're doing this big movie called The Krampus and it's this monster. And if we could do one that's independent, that's kind of like it, you know. So I just started researching it and I thought it was really fascinating. I mean, the lore, like depending on who you talk to, it wasn't like, you know, the Authorian legend level of canon on it. It was a couple of different excerpts from Wikipedia and websites that I could find that had talked about this Germanic Christmas demon, Christmas devil. Uh, I thought it was really interesting. And then there was this big Krampus culture in Europe where they would have these Krampus, they still do have these Krampus marches and Krampus walks where the adults dress up like this scary monster and scare the kids at Christmas time. So it's kind of like a, a scary Mardi Gras. Almost, yeah. Right? Yeah. It found it really interesting. You know, it was, a, it's a, just a kind of a cool thing. And I think, you know, in a weird way, I mean, a lot of people dread the holidays. So I think Krampus to me kind of represents the, uh, <laughs> the manifestation of that uh, underlying dread, you know, the, the added financial pressure, um, the difficulty of dealing with family, uh, you know, and in, in Krampus is kind of an escape because uh, the family gets torn to shreds by a monster. Your annoying uncle gets ripped apart by the Krampus. So right. try to take it with all with, you know, obviously with tongue in cheek and ten, you know, not trying to get too macabre with it. But uh, well, that's and, the one thing that somebody said to me over the Halloween holiday. They were a horror writer. They were at Burton Bar for a local author's fair, and they were talking about the different types of horror. That, sure, there is the kind of shock and awe, the macabre, the gruesome, but then there is horror that kind of makes you laugh. Yeah. Did you combine all of those uh, for sort of your, I guess, characterization, if you will, of your Krampus? I've never been a fan of sequels, really, unless Mm. it's absolutely warranted and necessary. Like, for instance, you know, you didn't have enough money to or time to tell your story. So, you know, a second film is really called for to, for the for the sake of the story, for the sake of the plot. With the Krampus films, it was something that, you know, I mean, brass tacks, they were performing pretty well. Distribution company wanted to do more, but I I made them incredibly different films. The three films are not really in the same universe. They're not really attached. They just deal with Krampus. But the first one was kind of like a take on a Twilight Zone type approach, which I was a big fan of growing up, the Twilight, I mean, I'm not that old, but you know, the reruns, um, the Twilight Zone kind of uh, mystery uh, approach, that was the first one, which was, I guess, more dramatic, more, you know, an attempt to be scary. And then we did the second one, it was a different kind of horror movie, it was definitely more the gore fest slash comedy, with the family, the obnoxious teenager, the know-it-all brother-in-law, you know, the whole kind of uh, holiday cliche, you know. Uh, I, I actually like this comparison when someone uh, calls it like a Hallmark movie where everything goes horribly bad when a, <laughs> when a demon shows up. And I and I actually really dug that because that was kind of like the spirit that I wrote it in. This very kind of home for the holidays, t- made-for-TV movie, but then we have a Krampus monster tearing uh, annoying relatives to shreds so it just it was a lot of fun um and then the third one i actually i didn't direct this one joseph umba who was my cinematographer on the other two he directed it but uh i wrote it and i produced it i figured two two Krampus films was probably enough for me <laughs> but this was actually my favorite one uh it, we did it more as a fantasy and centered it around an orphanage at the turn of the century the 20th century during World War One or the end of World War One, and that was really cool. I think that the, the the creature of the Krampus worked better in a historical context because, it, you know, it's so fantastical of a monster that it's really hard to apply that into 
any type of credible narrative. You're not going to really be afraid of a Krampus because it's such a leap of imagination. But when you go into like a historical time, even, you know, the early 20th century, uh, fantasy elements, fantasy monsters, the fact that, you know, for the first time we really did focus on kind of the core mythology that the Krampus terrorizes the children. And it was more of a kid's movie. I mean, it's a dark kid's movie, but it was, you know. Sure. The others were definitely solid R's. This was more of a PG, maybe a PG-13, but we didn't want to make it too graphic. Obviously, children are central figures uh, Mm. in the storyline in in these films. And I'm kind of curious what that was like on set, dealing with child actors and actresses. It's really great. And working with kids is wonderful. I mean, I don't know about that whole thing about uh, animals and children, because I've always had real good luck with both. You know, I've just done uh, my second Western with plenty of horses, and they're great. You know, and kids are great because kids, their imaginations, they're just, they run wild with them. I've been really lucky that the kids that I cast, and I try to look for this when we are casting them, is that we're not casting kids that don't want to be there. Right. We want to cast kids that really, you know, you get the impression that it's not something the parents are pushing them to do. It's something they actually want to do. And then it's really fun because they're just, they're hanging out with other kids and... We try to keep it fun for them. How do they deal with sort of the heavy, you know, mood and the tone of, of horror? I mean, ultimately, you're trying to achieve scary effects. You're trying to scare the audience, yeah, and the I, kid's got to emote something like that, right? They do. They do. I mean, sometimes, you're, usually, you're talking more about, you know, the teenage-type years or the uh, the ones that are that young aren't really involved. They are, they're in the film, but they really wouldn't be involved, like, at least not alone by themselves in the really scarier stuff. And also, it's... I mean, it's different when they're on set, you know, because everybody's having fun. And we tell them, okay, now you have to be scared. But they are but they they know everybody. They feel very comfortable. You know, it's like, I don't know, what kind of ruins horror movies for people that work on horror films is like you see somebody walking down a dark alley alone. Well, they're not alone. There's a crew of 20 people and there's a craft service table and there's a script right. supervisor. You know, <laughs> they're actually perfectly safe. And, you know, so there's that kind of like that. The kids really just... You know, again, their imaginations, they just dive right in. So for them, it's just an extension of the playground, if you will. I, I think it really is. Yeah. I don't, I don't I, you know, I, I've never had a kid get scared or act like this was something too graphic. We shelter the younger ones from certain things, like if there's going to be blood or something that might be kind of scary. But they see the guy getting into the suit and that guy's talking to them and they're Children are very observant, and they want to see how the makeup's being applied and stuff. So everybody's just it's, it's, we just all kind of become kind of a, you know to use a cliche kind of a film family. I never had a kid crying running off set. No, they're 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 very inquisitive. They really, they want to know how you know, and they ask a lot of questions. Sometimes drive the makeup people crazy, but you know, right, right. it's it's really a lot of fun. So what are you working on these days? What's new on the horizon for you? Well, I have another western. Been sticking that for a while. Eminence Hills, my Westerns just came out. That was my uh, Lance Henriksen, Barry Corbin, Clint James, my brother Owen Conway. That came out in uh, November. My next one's another Western. So you've kind of returned full circle to your early interests. I have. You know, horror was becoming really crowded. A lot of independent producers making a lot of horror content, and I had done a lot. You know, I'd done a lot of horror films. I did the sci-fi horror. I did the straight-up horror. I did the gore horror. I did the grindhouse horror. It was time to change things creatively. And uh, What is it about that genre that you think makes it so popular? People love horror movies. I mean, people love a great suspense story. I mean, to me, 
my favorite movies that I call horror movies, a lot of people wouldn't consider horror, like Silence of the Lambs. That's a great horror movie because it's very psychological. Uh, some of the supernatural stuff, like the original Exorcist, is excellent, you know. Uh, I did an Exorcist movie. That was my favorite horror movie out of mine called The Covenant. Even if people aren't diehard fans of horror, there is always that understanding that it is something that, you know, an independent producer can make for a relatively low amount of money that someone will actually want to see, distribute, buy. So it just depends, I think, on who the producer is. But when you come to a realization like, look, what are you going to get paid for? I remember when I was very early, I finished my first film and I was, you know, I wanted to do things that were dealing with cultural and social issues and I wanted to make an impact and, you know, all those you know, lofty ideals. And uh, this guy turned out to be a piece of work. But anyway, he was actually right about this, what he said, though, this Hollywood producer, he said, you know, on your level, nobody wants to see that. They want to see horror. They want to see action. That's kind of it. You've got to play to that and you have to uh, do what people are willing to uh, support you in. Right. And at some level, you know, if, if there's not box office dollars coming in behind it, these things aren't going to continue to get produced. you got to pay the rent, if you will. You have to pay the rent, and you have to turn profit, and you have to make money for your backers. And it's just, I mean, for me, it doesn't matter all that much because you're making a movie. And, you know, whatever movie you're making, if it's something, as long as it's not something you're really morally opposed to, it's a great, fun adventure to make a film. Well, and I've heard from actors like James Spader, for instance. He said, you know, yeah, sure. I've had the blockbusters, but that's also afforded me the chance to travel to places and localities that I never would have gotten to see if I just did art house films. Of course. You know, or if I just did stage, for instance. Yeah. And it doesn't take away from the body of his work at large. But the other thing I think about horror specifically is... It makes people feel alive. Yeah, it does. Confronting it, something that frightens you. It's an endorphin release. It definitely mm-hmm. is. It's a, it's a safe, it's like a roller coaster, you know. It's a safe way to experience a little bit of terror. I find, like, you know, a really good horror film for me is something, like, again, deals with more of the cerebral. Uh, people would call these suspense movies. But I, I picture horror is in what gives you that thrill. I worked with Kane Hodder on my second movie who played Jason Voorhees in several of the uh, Friday the 13th films. Those are fun, almost tongue-in-cheek movies today. But, you know, I've never found them scary. The scary stuff has always been the the stuff that you could imagine happening to you. You know, that's always the most terrifying thing. I mean, to go back to my horror movie that I liked the most was The Covenant. You know, it's an old story. It's been done a million times, but I tried to do it, you know basically about demonic possession. And I, you know, I, I took a lot of Mon- Monica Angusser, who played in one of my Krampus films. She was the lead in that. My brother, Owen, uh, a brother and sister who move into a small house, uh, the, the house they grew up in in the small town after the tragic event where her daughter died in under suspicious circumstances. And as the mother's coming to terms with that, the daughter comes back. And it's like... Uh, even though you know it's got supernatural elements in it, um, I, I looked at it as something like, I, I okay, I'm gonna get the statistic wrong, but but but, but the majority, I, I think the overwhelming majority of the population of the planet Earth believes in a god, a deity of some kind, and to me that helped me look at it as a credible story, even though it had demons and 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 you know ghosts and blah blah blah. 
the fact that most people believe in an afterlife of some kind, even if I have my skepticism, it, I, I was able to say, look, there's an audience out there that's going to relate to this as if, you know, on a cerebral psychological level to make it really scary. And um, I, I was proud of how that film turned out. You know, I, we, we tried to make it as real as, as we could with obviously supernatural elements happening. Well, and obviously for many people, they are celebrating the life of a half deity at any regard during this holiday season. Yeah. And so maybe there's some other type of tie-in and connection there too. Well, Robert, it's really been interesting catching up with you. I'm, I'm glad we had a chance to meet on such short notice. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. And I appreciate you coming in to talk to us about the scarier side of the holiday season. Absolutely. Sometimes it's the fun side. <laughs> and that'll do it for this episode of Word. If you have a suggestion for a future program or just want to hear our archive, visit word.kjzz.org. We'll be on hiatus for the month of January and we'll return in February with more episodes about the literary arts in the state and the region. Have a great new year. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks for listening. Word. Word? Word. What's the word? Thanks for listening to Word from the KJZZ Studios in Tempe, Arizona. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org.